Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Hello, everyone. And thank you very much for coming to this session. Welcome. And today, this is a public lecture where we are going to showcase some of the research that's going on into various aspects of cancer at Bath. This really stems from uh, the course, the MOOC, as we call it, the massive open online course called Inside Cancer, which launched uh, in January, and we're in the final week of this course. And what that course was really a beginner's guide to cancer biology and cancer genetics. And we thought that this course is a good foundation to look into exposing you to some of the research that's going on inside Bath. And what I also wanted to say is that uh, this session is being recorded live. So those of you who would like to join us, who are joining us online, please put your comments and questions to us either through the FutureLearn platform or through the Twitter hashtag uh, FutureLearnGenesPath. So what this, uh, I thought I'd start off by introducing you or reminding you again to some of you about the uh, massive uh, open online course called Inside Cancer. And as some of you know, it's a free course uh, delivered over six weeks time, this being the final week. And that course was essentially designed as a beginner's guide to cancer genetics. So going to a whole range of basic questions of what is cancer, how do we get cancer, what are the genetic factors that influence cancer development, ending with a little bit on the uh, treatment of cancer. And I thought I'd do the screenshot showing you exactly how the website or the course looks like. It's all the weeks are loaded up on the screen, as you can see, and today, this week, we're in the final week. And the mode of delivery of these courses, not simply through videos, but there's videos, there's articles, there's discussions, there's tasks, there's questions, and a lot of engaged learners. And I, I'm sure uh, those of you who have joined us and we've been posting comments on a weekly basis, but what has impressed all of us was the level of informed, knowledgeable engagement from all you learners. So thank you very much again for that. This is what the course looks like. It starts off with a short introduction to cancer. This is every week. There are about three sessions per week discussing various aspects of uh, these questions. Second week is about introduction to genetics, talking about DNA, uh, genes, gene expression, protein expression, leading on to some uh, interesting concepts of epigenetics. And the third and the fourth weeks are looking at giving you a broad overview of the key drivers for cancer development in terms of the genetics. What are the basic uh, hallmarks? What are the key influencing pathways for cancer, including how blood vessels are formed, how tumors spread, how cells can die, and how tumor cells stop this apoptotic cascade. All that is covered in weeks three and four. Weeks five and six looks at the human side of cancer, looking at treatments, looking at treatment planning, how clinical oncologists, uh, once they've got your case study, how they uh, design a treatment strategy uh, for that particular type of treatment. So we have input from our collaborators at the Royal United Hospital who offer their clinical input into treatment. And we also look this week at research models, uh, how research is done in the laboratories, right from bench to bedside. So starting off in the lab, leading to clinical trials. I thought I'd also introduce some of the team here. So this has been a wonderful uh, first-time effort for Bath, but all in terms of a free online course. But it was an interesting exercise also as a team for various people to come together. And this included us lot here. Uh, what we put together was based on lots of design and uh, discussion 
on what are the key questions that would interest a beginner. And this also reflects some of the research that goes on within the department as well as within the university. But this course wouldn't have been where it is without the input from a fantastic e-learning team, particularly Nitin, Marie and David, who have built in all the production, the videos, all the various formats of uh, teaching that you have seen through this course. And of course, our communication team, especially Katrina, who has been helping us in terms of uh, our marketing as well. And I thought I'd just update you on the sort of people who have done this course and the number. We've had exactly, the course registry stops within the second week. So we ended with just under 8,000 learners from various countries, 45 countries, with the UK, uh, the dominant country, but there were a lot of people from the US and other countries across. The gender divide was about 70% female, 30% male. But the interesting thing was we attracted a whole range of uh, learners from school students, novices. When I say novices, I meant in terms of biological knowledge, in terms of A-level biology knowledge. But even health professionals from GPs, pharmacists, nurses, as well as non-science professionals who have enrolled on this course. And this was what we were trying to achieve, really. Um, showing you how these connections work, showing you what we do in the lab, identifying various molecules <coughs> at the genetic level, looking at signaling pathways, looking at how cells talk to each other, how cells behave within the cell, looking at these various hallmarks of cancer, and then using that to talk with our colleagues in pharmacy and pharmacology, for instance, as well as in chemistry, to look at drug discovery pathways, how we can integrate this knowledge to design targets that can eventually, hopefully, lead to the clinic, where we can use clinical trial data to achieve the bedside in the sense of treatment. So without further ado, I'm not going to talk a lot about this. I shall hand over to uh, my colleague, Dr. Andy Chalmers, as well as Dr. Lorenzo Caggiano. These are the founding members of our network at Bath called as Cancer Research at Bath. And they will highlight some of the key areas of research going on. Okay, thanks very much, Monma. Hopefully I'm now on the mic. So um, it's really great, basically, to be able to come and um, chat to you a little bit about some of the research that's going on, um, both here at the University of Bath, but also in town at the Royal United Hospital. And so what I thought I'd do is start with a little bit of an overview, really, of some of the breadth of cancer research that's going on, because you may well not realise just quite how broad the, the um, interests are um, here at the university and, as I say, in town, and then focus on my particular interest, which is... Um, understanding how cells function with the basis that this is a, a, a slice of prostate cancer tissue and, and, and you can see the cells stained here in, in blue. You can't really understand what's going on in this tumour mass until you understand the way cells work and, and what's gone wrong in these, in these particularly in these tumour cells. So um, cancer research at Bath has been cancer research at Bath going on for a long time. Um, but what uh, myself and a number of colleagues realised um, was that there's no real sort of central organisation to, to bring cancer researchers together. So we had people working in all different disciplines and they would often talk to people, for example, in the States in their own discipline, but they wouldn't be talking to people um, in the next building in, in a different discipline. So we got together um, the people that are now the, the committee members, including people from a range of different departments um, at the university, and some clinical um, oncologists from the Royal United Hospital. And we set out with this kind of aim, which was to really facilitate cancer research by bringing together anybody with an interest in the subject. So we didn't set out to only talk to the biologists, like, like myself, but to really bring in anybody that was interested. That was our kind of remit. Because what we thought was that if we did that, then you would really facilitate um, the sort of interdisciplinary research which can really make a, make a difference. And what that's meant is that the cancer research at Bath is an incredibly broad network, as I mentioned. So we have um, biologists like myself, we've got medicinal chemists you can hear a bit more about in a, in a, in a bit. 
But we've also got um, psychologists looking at um, survivorship and cancer and various other issues. We've got people doing social policy, cancer imaging, sort of engineers and chemists. Um, and then some of the clinicians, um, both consultants and nurse practitioners, and a, a real range of different people with interest um, in cancer. And so that was our whole kind of remit. Um, and, and I think probably we are, I doubt there's another institute um, in, in the UK, for example, which would have such breadth. You, you get, the institutes tend to be very focused, for example, on, on the cell biology of cancer. So this is our real strength, I would say, um, being based at a university like Bath, where you can meet people from different, different disciplines. I'm just going to touch on um, a bit, really, and only a tiny bit of the biology of, sorry, the um, some of the cell biology which is studying cancer in Bath. I picked what I think are three exciting topics. Um, you can have a look at the website if you want to, um, want to see more and you'll also hear some chemistry in a, in a bit. So um, why cells? Why should we care about cells? Why does it matter for understanding cancer? So take you back to something that you, I'm sure you're all aware of but you probably don't think about all that often, which is that all of us are made up of many billions of individual cells you can think of yourself as a bit like a, a Lego person, um, lots of different building blocks stuck together to make a whole, a whole person. But of course, um, unlike Lego blocks, then um, the individual cells are packed full of, of mach complex machinery. So um, individual cells can divide, so a single cell can divide to produce two new cells. They can differentiate, which is the process where you get specialised cells, and I'm going to come on to that in a bit more detail in a minute. They can even die, so cells can decide, um, for example, if they're damaged, to, to trigger what's called apoptosis and, and commit um, cellular suicide. So they've got these complex um, control mechanisms sort of built in. So cells are very varied. Um, if you're a cell biologist, they're very beautiful as well. I'll show you just a couple of examples here um, that I think, just to illustrate this point really, so the first example, this is a slice of some pancreas tissue. It's been, the pancreas tissue has been put into wax and then sectioned. And then the sections have been stained and, and um, pictures taken with a microscope. And what you'll see here is the, the, the stained cells, the nuclei where the DNA is are stained in the darker blue, and then the lighter pinky red colour is the cytoplasm of the cell. And what you can see here is even in the pancreas there are different cell types. And straight away you can see that these cells in the middle are different. And the reason that they're different is that's a pancreatic islet, which contains, among other things, the hormone-secreting cells, so which will secrete insulin. These are some, a, a completely different cell type um, from a colleague of mine. So these are uh, neurons. They're in a dish. They've been, um, so nerve cells, uh, this time the DNA have been stained in blue. And you can see the axons out in the green and yellow colour. So each um, neuron will send out an axon and connect to, to neighbouring cells, allowing them to communicate with each other. So a key question really has been, um, in science has been, well, how do you make... We all start life as a fertilised egg. That can divide to produce two cells and four cells and so on. How do these cells then start to become different? So why is it that the cells in the brain make nerve cells so that they can connect, and the cells in the pancreas... Um, Make, the, make what you need to secrete insulin and regulate blood glucose. Of course, it's crucial that these things happen in the right place and in the, at the right sort of time and in the right numbers. And one of the sort of um, hallmarks of biology, if you like, the sort of key founding principles of biology is that the way this happens is that if you look at the DNA of these two cell types, then the DNA is the same. So they all have, the, the cells have all the DNA you need and what happens is, within the pancreas cells, the, 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 DNA is broken up into, the DNA is broken up into genes, and you'll get some genes which are required for, um, to make a pancreas cell. And these genes will be activated. They then make the proteins, which then um, allow the cell to become a pancreas cell. These cells will also have all the genes you need to make nerve cells, but those genes will be switched off. So this decision about whether to activate or switch off genes is crucial to this process of differentiation. And it's also crucial, what I hope to, to show you is that it's also crucial for understanding what goes wrong in, in um, cancer formation. So, as I say, the point is really to show you some of what we're doing um, both at the university and down at the hospital. 
And normally what you might get is, is some talks which is all sort of completed work, it's published, it's old, it's made it into the textbooks. I thought I'd try something a little bit different, which is I'm going to show you three projects that are all really quite new and I think quite exciting um, and show you really the point I want to make is that biology is not finished. There is such a lot that we don't understand about cells and about how um, what's going wrong in, in cancers. So the first project I want to talk about is, um, and this is from um, Professor David Tosh and his laboratory, so it's not my work, but I just wanted to flag it up. Um, hopefully any of my colleagues won't tell David that I showed his picture, otherwise he'll probably, uh, probably be cross. Um, David's lab work on this really interesting um, sort of syndrome, which is called Barrett's um, esophagus. And what happens in Barrett's esophagus is what's called a metaplasia. And that's a really very unusual event, which is where one cell type changes into another. So the cells that line your esophagus um, are what's called esophageal epithelial cells. But in Barrett's um, esophagus or Barrett's metaplasia, then some of those cells take on an intestinal-like um, phenotype. So the question is, why would those cells, um, which, which know that they should be esophagus, they were esophageal cells, switch and become intestinal cells? And this is an important question to understand because um, Barrett's esophagus doesn't cause too many problems to the patients, but the, what, what it does cause is a huge increase in the chance of esophageal cancer. And this is one of those cancers which is um, increasing in, um, in, in developed countries like the UK and in the US. And unfortunately, it's got a very poor, poor survival rate. So it's really important that we understand what's driving this process. Um, I'm going to show you a couple of pictures, so if you're squeamish, you might want to close your eyes for 30 seconds. Um, this is a normal esophagus, so you can see these are endoscopy pictures. David collaborates with um, clinicians from the hospital. You can see the... Um, you can see the esophageal epithelium is here, and then this is where you would go into the stomach. This is Barrett's esophagus, which the consultants can easily diagnose, because you can see these groups of cells which are a different colour here, sort of coming up the esophagus. And, th and these are, um, are known to be um, intestinal-like cells. And as I mentioned, if you, if you have this, then unfortunately you have a much higher chance of having this, which is a, an esophageal tumour. So I mentioned that um, understanding how a cell differentiates to produce a certain cell type is all down to um, gene regulation. So what David's lab have decided to do was... Um, if you could work out what was driving the regulation of, for example, intestinal cells, that might be what's driving the esophageal cells to become intestinal life. And it's known that transcription factors, these are proteins which stick to bits of DNA and activate certain genes to make proteins to become, for example, intestinal, are key at driving this, the, 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 are key drivers of why certain cells will express certain genes, whereas other cells, or, or, yeah, other cells will express other genes. So the transcription factor might be activating, in the example I showed you, the, pro the genes and then the proteins you need to make a nerve cell, um, or they might be inhibiting the proteins that you need to be an intestinal cell. So the experiments that David's lab have been doing is to take transcription factors that they know about and put them into normal um, esophageal cells in, in, um, in culture. So this is, this, is, this is our controlled esophageal cells, the nuclei stained blue. They don't have the transcription factor which is stained red and they are stained for villain. And what villain is, a, is a marker which is normally expressed in the intestine. So you can see straight away that there's no green here, so that's um, as you'd expect. When you put in this transcription factor, it goes to the nucleus and starts activating gene expression, so the nuclei turn to red. You can see two nuclei here which have got the transcription factor, and there's one underneath here which, which doesn't. And what David found, which was really interesting, is that this particular transcription factor can then activate the expression of villain. So this, these esophageal cells are starting to take on the characteristics of intestinal cells, just like you get in Barrett's uh, metaplasia. So as I mentioned, this is, this is early work. There's lots to be, to be done, but the, the, the sort of um, driving motivation is really is if you can find out what the, what the um, factors are that are driving the Barrett's esophagus, then you can hand it over to the drug discovery people um, like Lorenzo, to hopefully design strategies to try and inhibit that, those driving forces and allow cells to hopefully revert back to their esophageal phenotype. So that's the first, first example. The second example is work from 
um, excuse me, I've got a bit of a cold, um, from Adele, from Adele Morrell, who's a, a new reader in the department. She was, um, we were quite pleased to poach her from a, a cancer institute in Cambridge. And um, she works on DNA modifications in cancer. So the, the activation of genes is controlled by transcription factors coming in and binding, activating gene expression to activate proteins or to make proteins. But it can also be controlled by chemical modification of the DNA, which is termed epigenetics. And so what Adele's work does is to look at these different, identify new modifications of genes, and then ask, um, are those modifications um, sort of incorrectly controlled in, in tumour formation, and can that help explain why you get defective gene expression in tumours? And she's got an interest in, in particularly in breast cancer, but also in colorectal cancer, which is again a, a, a common cancer and has a fairly poor, um, unfortunately, poor, fairly poor survival rate. So what she's found, which is looking at one particular modification, and it's called 5-hydroxymethylcytidine, um, is again, this is a tissue slice, this time in the intestine. You can see the nuclei in brown here and in blue down here. This structure here is one of the villi that stick out into your intestine and help um, absorb nutrients. Down here is the stem cell population. So the stem cells are the cells which will are fairly undifferentiated and will divide to produce more stem cells, but they'll also divide to form precursor cells, which will move up here, differentiate to replace intestinal cells as those that are lost. There's a constant loss of intestinal cells from this end of the villi. So without the stem cells, basically your intestine would run out of cells um, fairly quickly. And what when Adele stained for this particular modification, what she found was that it was completely missing from all the differentiated cells, so these are brown nuclei. Basically, it, the, the modification is shown by the blue here. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Um, the modification is shown by the blue here, which you can see is restricted to what's called the crypts where the stem cells are. Also, when she started to look at tumour samples, these are what's called dot plots, and basically where you have a dark colour, then you have the modification. He looked at different samples, they all have DNA. Normal intestine has high levels of this modification. But if you look in adenoma and then um, um, intestinal tumours, then you see that the modification has basically gone. It's back to the sort of background level of staining you get in the experiment. So what's exciting about this is that um, this mark is gone in the adenoma, which is the sort of precursor to the full-blown um, intestinal tumour. Um, so it's a really early change that this, this mark is lost. And, 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 but beyond that, Adele's lab really don't know and nobody knows, um, you know, what are the genes that this mark is normally controlling that um, it's lost from? And therefore, what genes are altered, in, uh, or altered because of the loss of this modification? And also, interestingly, because it's lost so early, could it be potentially used as, to help... Um, sort of early diagnosis and screening of tumours. Again, it's very early, but I think it's really quite, um, quite exciting. So the final um, of the three sort of stories I'm going to tell you about is, is the last story, and it's, again, it's one I think is exciting, but I'm probably biased as it's one from my lab. Um, and it's also a really nice one to, to talk about here because it was entirely made possible because of the Cancer Research Network and collaborators I met through the network. And it's also funded by the Annette Trust, which is a charity that's based in Bath that fund medical research. And this was um, organised by the alumni, so we're very grateful for them for organising it. And it's a collaboration with two um, clinical oncologists and a pathologist, and I'll show you why that's all important in a minute. And the hard work is done by um, my very talented PhD student called Ben. So prostate cancer, is, as probably many of you may, may know, um, is the most common male cancer. Unlike the other two cancers I mentioned, the survival rate is, is good, so um, five-year survival rate is at 80%. But what that figure masks is that it's actually a very variable disease. So some prostate cancers can be very aggressive and have a high chance of relapsing following treatment, and some can prostate cancers are very slow-growing. And the chances are the patient won't die from the cancer, they're more likely to die with the cancer. So what, would be, what the clinicians would like is really 
a way of, of, of having biomarkers, so some feature that we can measure which can distinguish those patients which are um, at risk of very aggressive tumours or, or fairly slow-growing tumours. Because then you can tailor the treatment to, to the type of tumour that the, the um, patient has. So the, the project we've set up um, started with ethical review, so we had to apply to ethical review to use patient samples. Then the consultants asked for patient consent, and it's basically really appreciated whenever patients give consent because they're not going to benefit directly from this work. The idea is that hopefully it will benefit future patients. So the consultants ask for consent, then the pathologists get given the anonymous um, number for the patient and um, we can come along. And what happens normally in prostate cancer is that um, the patient will have a, often have a prostatectomy, so the, the prostate cancer will be removed. It's taken to the pathology department, sections are cut for, um, for sort of diagnosis to confirm that it was cancerous. Um, and then the block is kept in the pathology department and most of it will never be used. So now, once we've got consent, what we can do is come along and with a, a, a one millimetre corer, take out a small one millimetre core from the sample, like this. We do that from a number of different um, patients and we put them together in what's called a tissue microarray. So basically we take lots of different, different cores from as many patients as we can get in, and put them into the same wax block. You can then cut sections of that block and um, so then what you have is a slide with lots of different cancer samples on it and you can stain all those samples at the same time for your marker of interest with this slide. With this slide it's got the same patients so we can compare but we can use a different marker and we can compare the results from different experiments. So then the key thing is what are the markers you want to look at to, um, to try to see whether there's a difference and, and in particular in our study we're looking at patients whose prostate cancer relapsed versus those that didn't. And so what we want to see is whether there's a difference in the expression of a marker which would then, if used on new patients, be able to distinguish those two, so to predict the outcome. And what we decided to do was focus on um, stem cell markers. So um, there's a lot of excitement in, in, in sort of cancer research about the idea that uh, cancers have stem cells which can be, just like normal cells, they're not a, a, a sort of homogeneous mass of cells, but there might be cancer stem cells within the tumour which divide to produce cells which differentiate in brackets. It's sort of, they'll still be abnormal, but they'll be, can, they'll be more differentiated than the cancer stem cell and also maintain the cancer stem cell. And this is important because it means that if you're trying to treat cancer, for example, with drugs, you may need different drugs to hit the stem cell and the differentiated stem cell. Otherwise, if you leave, the, particularly the stem cell, it may then um, get relapsed because the cancer comes back and because the stem cell can divide to produce more cells. So we took basically, Ben scoured the literature for different proteins, which had different markers which had been linked to either all, all sorts of different stem cells, all sorts of different cancer stem cells. And then what we're starting to do is to look at the expression of them in our samples. And that's the, where I really started with the, the section at the beginning. I'm just going to show you one example. Um, this is a transmembrane protein we're looking at. Again, you'll be getting used to this now. The brown stain is where our marker is. These are both prostate cancer samples. But in, and towards the edge, you often get regions which look more normal, according to the, the pathologist, our pathologist collaborators. And here, you can see the staining is brown in these what are called basal cells. So the epithelium has two layers of cells. The basal cell um, is known to contain stem cells. This staining is probably much broader than just the stem cells, but it, the stem cells are there. However, in the more tumorous regions, the staining, this is what you can see some sort of remains of an epithelium, but the staining's gone. But what's really interesting is we've got scattered cells remaining. And we've got absolutely no idea what these cells are. It would be really amazing. You can imagine what we want them to be. Is it would be a really amazing if they're cancer stem cells, but we've got no idea if that's the case. So now, what we've got to do is two things. Firstly, to try to work out by using other markers, what are these cells? Are they really prostate cancer stem cells? Are they some other individual cell type that we, maybe we don't know about? Um, and secondly, if, if we, or I should say we, if Ben counts these in the patients which relapse and the patients that don't, is there any relationship? So 
is there any, are, for example, there more of these or less of these in the patients that relapse and therefore it might be a potential biomarker? So we're following up this one and, and other um, potential biomarkers to hopefully um, improve our understanding of prostate cancer, but then ultimately um, hopefully develop new biomarkers. So that's the three stories I want to tell you. Um, I've told you a little bit about Barrett's esophagus and the work from David Tosh's lab, a little bit about DNA modifications in cancer, from Adele's work, a little bit about um, Ben's work from my lab. And it, you can see it all revolves around basically this idea that if you can understand what's gone wrong in cells, then you can hopefully I get a much better idea of what's gone wrong in cancer. And I think then you've got a much better chance of, of for example, diagnosing cancer properly, um, improving current treatments, deciding which treatments you, you should give, and then also developing new treatments. And developing new treatments is where I pass over to, to Lorenzo, who's going to tell you about um, medicinal chemistry and drug development. Slick as your transition, I'm afraid. There you go. Thanks. Right. <coughs> Good evening, everyone. Um, uh, my name is uh, Dr. Lorenzo Caggiano. I'm a lecturer in medicinal chemistry at the Department of Pharmacy and Pharmacology here at the University of Bath. And for those of you who embarked on the, the MOOC course and have got through to uh, week six, congratulations, well done. Um, so I'm just going to present 20 minutes, uh, an overview of medicinal chemistry within the Department um, uh, of Pharmacy and Pharmacology. So as the, the title suggests, it's from bench to bedside. So medicinal chemistry, what is medicinal chemistry? So... Um, we make drugs. We make drugs for a living. Although if I'm going through passport control, um, I kind of change that story a little bit and make it a bit more scientific. But that's effectively what we're doing with medicinal chemistry. Okay? Um, and this presentation is just a brief overview of some of uh, my research group, but also collaborators within the department, uh, colleagues within the department. Uh, I'll just go through a bit like Andy, uh, giving you some uh, just a brief overview of some um, in really interesting work that's going on. So it's medicinal chemistry. Um, myself and uh, my colleagues within the department, many of us, are interested in the design, the synthesis, and the biologic biological evaluation of compounds to treat cancer. So where do we start from? Where does the medicinal chemist start from? So I know it's 6.30 in the evening and I'm hitting you with uh, complex structures. Uh, if this looks complicated, it's because it is. Um, I re uh, we saw in Momna's presentation at the very beginning, um, for all the people that uh, signed up for the MOOC, there's a wide range of uh, uh, backgrounds. So this is a structure of uh, Taxol, Paclitaxel. Uh, it's a complex uh, structure, but again, uh, it interacts with proteins and enzymes, and those proteins and enzymes don't have a chemistry degree. You don't need a chemistry degree. All you need is shape. It's recognition of shape. So when I show you structures, it's just simply the shape. I'm just showing you uh, that's how uh, these molecules uh, have a response. The interaction is all to do with shape. Um, so this is a, a, a complex compound. Um, it's, um, it has potent anti-cancer activity. It was discovered in the 60s, but it's still clinically relevant today. Um, it's first-line treatment against a variety of cancers. Um, and it was actually isolated um, from uh, this, which is a Pacific yew tree. Um, so this is a natural product. It's something that was isolated from nature. Um, this is a, another natural product. Um, it's called a lutherobin. Um, it uh, also has a similar mode of action as taxol, but it's active against taxol-resistant cancer cell lines. So that's why it's really very interesting. Um, I would also say again, this is another complex uh, structure, and it's another natural product. This one, however, is isolated from this. Um, can you guess what it is? Animal, mineral, or vegetable? That is actually a sea sponge. 
Um, it's not quite like the loofah in your bathroom. Um, so this is uh, an animal um, and someone's actually isolated eleutherobin and it's been found to elicit this response. Um, the reason why this can be a drug actually in the clinic is because you can get large quantities. Um, this is not available because you can't get large quantities. And you would have to have a heart of stone to squish a lot of these uh, sea sponges just to get minuscule quantities. So that's where medicinal chemistry comes in. Okay? So we're inspired by nature um, and it's a good starting point. Nature has made these compounds for its own purposes and we're hijacking them for our purposes. So that's where we were able to make the molecules ourselves and try and build, make it a better drug. Um, just to give you some numbers, so IC50, that's uh, inhibition concentration 50%. That's the amount of compounds, amount of drug required to uh, reduce cell growth by 50%. So the smaller the number, the more active it is. So this is 5 nanomolar, so 5 times 10 to the power minus 9, so very small numbers, so very active. And the, the, the things in brackets, those are different cell lines. So HT29, you'll see that again, that's a colon cancer cell line. So you can see both these compounds are very active in the nanomolar region, and they actually both elicit their response through the stabilisation of microtubules. So you might know during, your, uh, during mitosis, there's the mitotic spindle, uh, and if you interfere with that process, you're going to interfere with cell division, and that's going to be a cancer target. So where do we come in as a medicinal chemist? Well, these, these structures are too difficult to isolate from nature, and they're too difficult to make. So what we try to do is make simplified analogues. And this is one such simplified analogue that we, um, I made in a different group many years ago. Um, and we found it wasn't as active as we'd hoped, around uh, 5 micromolar rather than 5 nanomolar. And we postulated that we were getting, because of uh, lack of steric hindrance, we were getting ester hydrolysis. So you might remember in your chemistry, hydrolysis of an ester to give you carboxylic acid and an alcohol. So there's possible ester hydrolysis. So what we decided when I got my position here at the University of Bath, um, so this is a pharmacophore. That means something that's very important to biological activity. And this is a different compound, a chalcone, and we, what we hi, uh, hypothesized was, can we bring those together and make a hybrid structure? You'll notice now, rather than having an ester, which is hydrolyzable, we now have a ketone, which is not hydrolyzable. So that was our hypothesis, and we made it. So here's some previous simplified analogues, and this was our compound. We hypothesized, we made it, and we tested it, and we were very pleased to see very good levels, uh, three micromolar. This is colon cancer cell line, five micromolar against breast, MDA231. LNCAP is a prostate cancer cell line, activity drops off. And FEC4, that's actually not a cancer cell line, that's just human skin fibroblast cells, uh, and the activity drops off. So that's a really important thing in medicinal chemistry. It's not just killing cells, Bleach can do that. What you're looking for is targeting, selectively killing cancer cells and not normal cells. So what you're looking for is high levels of activity and low levels of activity. And the great thing about this is that this is much more drug-like. You can make it in two steps. These simplified analogues still required more than 20 steps. Moving on to another project, I'd like to introduce you to a couple of friends of mine, narcyclocene and pancratostatin. These are also natural products, and they come from the daffodil. Um, so you might have seen um, lots of advertisement with, uh, of this lecture with daffodils, and this is part of the reason why. Um, and I like this time of year, although the daffodils haven't quite made it out yet. Um, but uh, these compounds have been isolated from the daffodil. And I love this story because it goes back thousands of years. And it goes back to flower growers. Ornamental flower growers found out you should not put daffodils in a vase with other flowers. I didn't know that. 
The reason uh, is because the, the other flowers wilt off and die before they should do. And so somebody, some bright spark, thousands of years ago, um, realised what you have in that daffodil is an anti-growth compound. It's protecting its environment, it's stopping other flowers from growing in its vicinity. And we have hijacked that molecule um, and an anti-growth compound for the daffodil is an anti-cancer compound for us. So again, nature's made it for its own purposes and we've just adopted it. I always feel a bit of a fraud showing this picture because uh, it's actually not in the daffodil flower, it's in the bulb, but it's a much less attractive picture. Um, but it also highlights you should, you should wear gloves when you're dealing with daffodil bulbs. I'm learning lots about daffodils, by the way. Um, because actually, these are just two compounds out of hundreds of compounds that are found in daffodil bulbs. Only these are, are, are interesting, the others are toxic. Okay, so again, inspired by nature, nature's provided us with these compounds, and now as medicinal chemists, we can then use it, uh, make analogues for our own purpose. Uh, so these are characterized by these three rings, this ABC ring system. And just a very bit, a uh, small bit of chemistry, just to show cheap commercially available starting material in a single step, we discovered this a few years ago, we're able to obtain this compound. And again, just going back to shape, you don't need to know anything about chemistry, but to see that what's highlighted in blue, in a single step we've made the AB ring system. What about the ABC? So we've, uh, very recently, this is yet to be published, uh, we sh uh, we've shown that we can, in a single step, make this carboxylic acid, and using the conditions on the previous slide, get to this compound, which um, shows moderate levels around 10 micromolar, um, just to go back to pancratostatin, and highlighted in blue, what we've generated in two steps is the ABC ring system of the natural product. And now, as medicinal chemists, we can start to furnish it and start to develop it as a drug. So that's, uh, so this, pre uh, this presentation is from bench to bedside. This is very much bench. So I'll start um, describing other projects from colleagues um, leading up to bedside. So also in the department is Dr. Lloyd. Uh, his research group is interested in prostate cancer. It's the most common uh, male-specific cancer. Um, current treatments, unfortunately, fail after two years. So there's a, an urgent need for new treatments. Um, AMACR is a protein that drives the growth of prostate cancer. So the hypothesis that his group is uh, making new drugs that should block AMACR and stop the cancer from growing. So um, this is to show you stuff that's going on in his lab. So what happens is the, that you grow bacteria, you spin them down um, and uh, uh, break up the cell walls of the bacteria. You then filter to actually isolate the AMACR protein and then you check that you've got it. And with the protein in hand, they're able to do some chemistry and using uh, spectroscopic techniques to try and investigate the effectiveness of new compounds to try and block the action of that AMCR. If you block that, is it possible you can block the prostate cancer? Other research uh, within the department, so Professor Threadgill has two projects related to cancer, uh, inhibitors of tankerases and um, prodrugs for prostate cancer. So tankerase, um, these are enzymes that um, regulate the lengths of uh, telomeres which are important in cancer. They're required for the function uh, of the mitotic spindle. So we mentioned the mitotic spindle. It's important in cell division. If you interfere with that, you're going to interfere with cell division, and that's going to be a cancer target. And it's also uh, involved in the wind uh, signaling pathway, which is also to do with growth. Um, this is to show you some drug design, so medicinal chemistry. So we've just gone through a couple of examples. So you go walk around uh, changing various uh, um, functional groups and investigate what happens. There's, here's the synthesis, so you've got to make the compounds. Um, here we have some modelling crystal structures, so there's uh, a model of the structure. 
Um, and this is the hypothesis that there's an enzyme pocket that, we, that this is going to fit into. So that's uh, computer modeling. And then we can use crystal structures. So we can actually see the, the actual compound that you've met, uh, generated, hopefully in the enzyme pocket that you've, you've designed it for. And then biological evaluation to test the hypothesis and see if it's worked. So we can see we're getting good levels of selectivity and again, activity against HT29. Uh, his second project, which is prodrugs for prostate cancer. So PSA is a prostate-specific antigen. Uh, it's present in the prostate. It's present in prostate cancer in elevated levels. Um, so it's a, it's a really smart way. So here we have uh, the drug attached to a polymer backbone um, that's attached with uh, a peptide sequence. This peptide sequence, and the drug is only released when the peptide sequence is cleaved and PSA specifically cleaves that linkage. So what you're doing there is you're delivering the drug specifically to where the cancer is. So it's a way of targeting. So also through the uh, permutation as, um, effect, you have um, a targeted delivery of the drug. Uh, so there's two uh, 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 methods there. This is just to, to show you what the actual drug, so there's the structure. And again, here, we've got nuclear magnetic resonance, NMR. This is mass spectroscopy and uh, computer modeling to try and help us understand what we're doing. Uh, other colleagues, Dr. Sharari Porzand and Dr. Ian Eggleston, are also involved in cancer research. And they're interested in iron chelators. Now, iron is an essential mineral. But you can have too much of a good thing. Too much iron uh, can lead to uh, oxidative stress and free radicals and cancer. So what they've developed here is um, a ligand, an iron chelator, something that can bind to iron, free iron, and stop it from uh, um, causing this oxidative damage. But how do you avoid removing iron in healthy cells? So the, the idea was you have the iron chelator, which is caged, and you have a source of irradiation, light. And the light removes the caging group, releases the iron chelator, which is then able to sequester the iron and have a therapeutic effect. So some drug molecules, so here's the caged iron chelator, no iron chelating activity. Under UV light, it then generates the compound which is then able to chelate to the iron. Now why is this important? Well, this is a promising way to protect against sunlight-induced skin cancer. So UVA is particularly harmful, and it leads to elevated levels of iron in the skin. So if you're able to um, incorporate your caged iron chelator in the sunscreen, then you'll generate this iron chelator, which will remove the iron reducing the chance of skin cancer and photoaging. The very last project I um, wish to describe is the work by Professor Potter in the, in the department. Um, and so here we have uh, the majority of breast cancer patients are postmenopausal, and about two-thirds of cancers are hormone-dependent. They're reliant on estrogen receptor positive. So here are some uh, uh, of the family of estrogen. Um, so these are sex hormones, and these actually fuel uh, various uh, uh, cancers, as, such as breast cancers. So um, if, we're, if we're able to prevent uh, their formation, maybe we can prevent the tumour from occurring. So this was uh, his therapeutic aim, to block the effects of an estrogen on tumour cell proliferation using a new therapy. And the therapy is to target sulfur, um, steroid sulfatase. So steroid sulfatase regulates the production of estrogen. And if you block the steroid sulfatase, can you block the production of estrogen and therefore block the production of these tumours? So again, as we, uh, it's a common theme with all of these projects, you design your 
compounds, you then synthesize them, you over, uh, express a protein, you isolate it, crystallize it with a ligand, you use molecular um, modeling, docking, computational chemistry, x-ray crystallography, to, uh, and then you refine your structure and report, repeat the whole process. So it's a very all-encompassing, a very long process. It requires a lot of effort from a lot of people to eventually come up with um, your lead compound. So this is STX64, Aristostat, um, and this is um, actually the first in-class clinical steroid sulfatase inhibitor, and it's actually currently undergoing clinical trials. So there are lots of press releases. Uh, I've just chosen one, um, showing you um, Medicinal Chemistry Group here at the University of Bath, Department of Pharmacy and Pharmacology, has designed and synthesized a steroid sulfatase inhibitor called Aristostat. Um, and it's, um, it's currently being investigated as a monotherapy and a dual therapy with this compound here, which is already available. Um, and so it's actually, so we're going from bench to bedside. This is actually being uh, administered to patients. Um, so there's some clinical data here. The clinician who led the study has recently said uh, in this paper here, to date four of the patients who received Aristostat had tumours that re remained stable for at least six months. One of these had metastases that improved after one month of treatment. This is very encouraging as these women are patients who are reaching the end of their hormonal treatment options. Uh, importantly, Aristostat was well tolerated at a uh, selected dose. I'm confident that Aristostat will become a new hormonal option in the treatment of postmenopausal women with estrogen receptor positive metastatic breast cancer. And following on from that, this is also being investigated against other uh, tumours which are also hormone dependent. So that concludes my uh, presentation on medicinal chemistry. So this is Cancer Research at Bath. Just wish to thank my colleagues uh, for allowing me to present their work and Sorry to those colleagues who haven't been able to present their work. Obviously, the funders are, you've seen on the slides, students, collaborators, thanks for your time. I will pass now on to Momna.